Well, like you, I'm sure I've just been heartbroken this week over the shootings at the historic Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, with nine shot dead, ranging in ages from 26 to 87, including their pastor, at the hands of a 21-year-old white supremacist who sat with them at Bible study for an hour before shooting them down. It's the latest horrific mass shooting, six in the last seven years, and the latest in a string of incidents well known to us by now in matters of race with Ferguson and Cleveland and Baltimore and Texas. It's so tragic, so senseless, so unnecessary, and so damn sad. And I recognize right off that as soon as I raise matters of race or racism, it can make us uncomfortable, perhaps even a little angry that we are here on Father's Day and now all of a sudden confronted by tragedy, confronted with the worst of our humanity. I come to church to get away from the awfulness of the world, we say. I don't want it to confront it here, too. But events in Charleston this week, when the awfulness of the world broke into a church, have dispelled the happy illusion that these are two different spheres. And as a preacher, I can tell you that it makes me uncomfortable, too. And it makes me angry that we keep finding ourselves in these places and these moments and to prepare yet another sermon about a mass shooting like Newtown or on race like Ferguson. As you may remember, back in December, I preached a sermon on Ferguson. You may remember it. And I got some pushback on that. And so I stepped back away from it. And just since then, we have seen a string of incidents and much clearer incidents between police and African-Americans, most recently in Baltimore and Texas. Over the months, we have heard with greater clarity the voices, including our own Christian brothers and sisters, of the anguish and pain in the African-American community. And yet it makes us uncomfortable, maybe because we aren't sure what to do or what to say, maybe because we feel implicated or judged. Maybe it raises memories of times when you were the victims of discrimination and prejudice. And so we often avoid it altogether or scapegoat one person or group or politicize the issue so entirely that it seems completely intractable. And in a strange twist, we somehow become the victims of a reality of our own making. But I ask you this morning for courage, for your courage this morning and in the days ahead to look at this in the eye. Because truly, if we can't talk about this now, when can we talk about it? This wasn't a movie theater or a school or an inner city neighborhood. It was a church with people engaged in Bible study, something we do here every single week. And the motives and the means were not ambiguous. Even closer to home, the pastor and the associate pastor who were killed were graduates from the Lutheran Seminary in South Carolina. And more troubling than that, the shooter was a member of an ELCA congregation. And so, as our presiding bishop wrote this week, all of a sudden, and for all of us, this is an intensely personal tragedy. One of our own is alleged to have shot and killed two who adopted us as their own. She adds, we might say that this was an isolated act by a deeply disturbed man, but we know that this is not the whole truth. It is not an isolated incident. And even if the shooter was unstable, the framework upon which he built his vision of race is not. 
Racism is a fact in American culture. Denial and avoidance of this fact are deadly. The Reverend Dr. Pinky leaves a wife and children. The other eight victims leave grieving families. The family of the suspected killer and two congregations are broken. She asks, as many of us have been asking this week, when will this end? It isn't about one shooter or one police officer or one person or one incident, but a system of racism that we are all tainted by, that hurts our African-American brothers and sisters economically and educationally and as disproportionate rates of incarceration and suspicion, and we are implicated in it because we participate and benefit from systems that do violence to the African-American community and people of color. And good people, profoundly good people, can fall into this. And um, I'm going to tell you something. It's a hard story to tell, especially on Father's Day. But uh, back in, it was the mid-'80s, I was in middle school, uh, and I was trying to awkwardly date people. And, um, and I started dating this girl and, um, who was black. And I remember my dad saying to me, you can't date her, she's black. And I remember how he told me, he we, it was sort of a father-son, heart-to-heart, I suppose, and so he took me to a basketball game. We were driving from Maryland, where we lived, down to Landover to uh, see the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan play the then with Washington Bullets. Uh, and so getting this information as we were driving down, um, and it didn't occur to either of us at the time, but, you know, looking back, here we are celebrating one person, Michael Jordan, an African-American man, best basketball player ever, and at the very same time saying, this can't happen because of the color of her skin. And culturally, we somehow, I think, hold these together, where we celebrate people and at the same time can disparage them equally at the same time. You know, for my part, my conviction in the wake of Charleston is that uh, I know these things, and I should be way more engaged with them than I should I remember a men's breakfast that we had with Zion Baptist Church, African-American church here in Ambler. We got together a couple times, our men's breakfast groups. Um, and when it was my time to share, I talked about how, um, you know, I had the privilege to, you know, decide whether or not to engage with racism, um, that uh, I could engage with it or not, and I could learn more about it or not. And when I said this, um, it blew all of our brothers from Zion Baptist away. They could not understand that because for them, racism is a daily, hourly reality that is inescapable. Uh, so the fact that I, as a white person, could say, well, and, you know, regretfully so, I, I can choose whether or not to engage with that issue. It's not an issue, it's, it's their life, and that was hugely telling. Um, it's a reality that we don't sometimes see or want to see. Uh, I think sometimes we just can't believe that it's actually that bad or that we can't see it or that it's just a people's own making or because it's so bad we turn away, too painful to see or to admit our complacency in systems that do such harm. Um, I'm reminded of what Paul writes to the, to the Corinthians, and I think about the African-American experience. We experience afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and sleepless nights. You know, just yesterday, uh, I was driving through Philadelphia. A friend and I wanted to try a new pub down um, in Fishtown. Uh, but we drove 
the scenic route through the city. So we'd done 309 and Cheltenham Avenue and North 2nd Avenue um, and made our way down through the most um, poor parts of Kensington, you know. And then as we made our way over, in just a matter of a couple blocks, here we were in Fishtown, which has been this you know, newly gentrified area. So an almost entirely African-American community of people on the street and almost entirely white community, just in a matter of a few blocks. There was such a disparity that we just, we just couldn't, we couldn't get over it. And I know here at UDLC, we have such a passion for serving people in need. From Chosen 300, where we go downtown, delivering beds for kids, which we did this weekend, going off to ASP, we commissioned those folks today. It's amazing, and I've served in those capacities. But then I always have this feeling at the end of that experience, when we drive home or we come back from ASP, that you know, I get to choose whether or not I want to, to continue to engage these issues or questions. I have a choice. I get to go home, where for people who are living in poverty, it is their moment-by-moment reality, whether here in the city in Kensington or in Appalachia. And I wonder, as a congregation, you know, we are so strong on service. I wonder together, we're so strong on service together and individually and as families, but I wonder what we might do as a congregation to advocate for justice, to help address the root causes of hunger and poverty and racism. How can we ensure in the long term that there are fewer people that need to be fed, fewer people that live in poverty, fewer people that know the devastating effects of prejudice. What might we do together? I don't know, but what might we do? It's not difficult this morning to relate to the feeling of the disciples who find themselves in the midst of this raging storm, for it has felt like that for us in the days since Charleston, a storm of information, of emotion, grief, heartbreak, and righteous anger. In our gospel, it says, a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. Now remember, most of these guys were fishermen. It would take a really, really bad storm to shake them, to feel like they could possibly die in this boat. And perhaps part of their fear was that the sanctuary of the boat uh, that they used to get away from the crowds who had followed Jesus had been compromised and threatened, like, like the sanctuary of a church like Emmanuel A.M.E. So Jesus was asleep in the stern in the back of the boat, and they woke him up, and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And the hard question always in this text is, why was Jesus asleep? Was Jesus just a sound sleeper? Did he need to sleep at all? He was the Son of God. Was he not concerned? Did he not care? Was he testing the disciples? It's open to interpretation. But the fear in the disciples' cry is real and echoes even today. And throughout of scripture, like in the book of Habakkuk, it says, How long, O Lord, must I cry for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence and you do not intervene? Why do you let me see iniquity? Why do you simply gaze at evil? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and discord. This is why the law is numb and justice never comes. For the wicked surround the just. This is why justice comes forth perverted. So Jesus wakes up rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace, be still. Then the wind ceases and there is a dead calm. And Jesus turns and looks at them and says, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? We are in the midst of a storm, confronted with the worst of our humanity, including perhaps our own indifference. And we look at God and we say, why? 
And perhaps, if only this is the sense I get from our reading this morning, perhaps God is looking back at us and saying to us, why indeed? The events of this last week do not beg the question, why does suffering happen? As if suffering comes from nowhere and is caused by no one. Suffering is something that we create and that we have the power to alleviate. The question, I think, is this. What have we wrought, and how can we begin to fix and heal and repair it? Ultimately, Jesus does still the storm and shows us that he is more powerful than all of the storms that this world can offer, stronger than our fear, our discomfort, our grief. He shows us again, as have the members of Emmanuel AME, that love is more powerful than hate, but that love must compel us in ways that loves and serves our neighbors. Dr. Martin Luther King wrote this. He said, Hatred and bitterness can never cure the disease of fear. Only love can do that. Hatred paralyzes life. Love releases it. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life. Love illumines it. We must rise to this moment in our awareness, in our consciousness, in our compassion for our brothers and sisters. And in all this, remain confident that God is with us. Finally, as one commentator wrote in recent days to the disciples of the boat, once they saw what only Jesus could do, they feared with a new fear, not horror, not terror, not trepidation, but an eye-opening awareness of God's utter awesomeness, God's miracle-working, storm-calming, fear-dispelling, peace-telling, humble-walking, terror-routing, hater-outing, mercy-loving, cross-bearing, salvation-securing, spirit-giving, love-living, sinner-forgiving, saint-motivating, for justice-doing Jesus. May we be filled with that same kind of awe and fear in the same Lord Jesus who confronted all the powers of injustice in his time and bids his children of every time to do the same. Amen.